You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Today, Neil, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the work that you've been doing around um, comparing natural and artificial intelligence. You, you wrote a blog post recently, and last fall you gave this really fantastic TED Talk um, on the, it's, I think it was called Mind and Machine. It was at uh, TEDx Exeter, and we'll have a link to it on the website. But I just wanted to sort of go through those arguments with you. Like, what is the difference and what is the important differentials between meat intelligence and machine intelligence? So I probably should take issue with calling this work because <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, really, it's just idle speculation. <laughs> Um, and it's very kind of you to ask. <laughs> um, no problem but, uh, here on our show. And, and I, okay, so, you know, one of the things I find very interesting is I get involved in debates on AI where um, my co-debatees or panelists sort of explain how they've been fascinated for a number of years by what artificial intelligence was and how to create it. Yeah. I just find this so alien. I'm like... Well, that never fascinated me. I was just trying to do <laughs> stuff, and I ended up here. I mean, that's so. But, but then, because I kind of feel I have to say something, and um, uh, so it, it's made me try and think uh, a lot about the difference between natural intelligence, and artificial intelligence. Mm. That also leads you to think, well, what do you mean by intelligence? And, mm -hmm. and different people mean different things, and people write papers about this. I certainly haven't read all of them, but but. When I try to enunciate what I mean by it, um, what I tend to mean is um, the, the use of information um, to um, achieve a particular goal, um, which let's assume is defined. Um, uh, and, and by using the information, you um, uh, reduce the amount of resource you deploy. Mm -hmm. Now, that's interesting because I, I've had this debate with, with philosophers and I think that, that that's probably a limited section of what people mean when they talk about intelligence. So they, people often say an intelligence. So, right. so an intelligence is something different. Right. right. Because, so And then people will have questioned me about, oh, what's the goal of an intelligence? I'm like, well, it doesn't have a goal. It's, oh, isn't it survival? It's like, oh, you think it could be intelligent but not be trying to survive. It's just to make you don't see many of them around. The you know? But I guess the natural intelligence versus artificial intelligence debate um, also tries to absorb more uh, what I think people's perception of artificial intelligence is. It, it's, it's trying to resonate with a wider debate. We've got to the stage where there are more people talking about artificial intelligence than actually doing it. Mm -hmm. So there's this sort of wonderful disassociation of the AI debate from the AI reality. I mean, it's an industry in itself. And, and of course, we're very participatory here in talking yep. machines. <laughs> but hopefully we are somewhat associated. Well, at, at least, Neil, <laughs> you are actually doing it. You are actually involved. And a lot of the people that we talk to are actually involved. When in I'm not talking it about it, sometimes I do find myself doing it. <laughs> So it was a thought that it was trying to something arguments that will resonate with, and there's two, and maybe they're separate, and maybe we should deal with them separately. But the one that's in the mind of machine intelligence is um, uh, this observation I had, and it came from reading. Well, it came through very strongly in Nick Bostrom's book, which is uh, I like Nick a lot. He, he's a lovely guy. He's very earnest, but I, but 
I mean, and the first three chapters of the book are quite readable, but then I really struggled, uh, I must say, and I did write a review of it. But one of the things that I, I tried to later encapsulate what bugged me about it is, um, I mean, what, one of the things that bugged me about it was um, this sense in which AIs are very human and have these individual objectives. And, mm. and I tried to, how can I distill that into something which is, um, explains why the, the nature of human intelligence is very different from the sort of things we're creating computers. And um, it's, it's this thing that I ended up calling the embodiment factor. I'm not sure that's a good name. People have oh. questioned that. I feel like it's a great name. It also helps to draw the line around sort of like, you know, embodied robotics and like the fact that those I are think it relates things. to that. I yeah. hope it relates to that. And I hope the people that do that, there's some brilliant people doing that, find it does relate to that. But, you know, sometimes I question myself whether it was a good term, but th that was the um, sense. Hmm. It, it's around this observation that I don't, I, I, you know, maybe someone's made this observation. But I did look around. I couldn't find anywhere else making this observation. It's a very simple observation is that uh, humans have an enormous amount of internal compute uh, and, just in absolute terms. So the example I used, I think, in the TED talk, because I was in Exeter, where the UK Met Office is, where they predict whether that the you would require their weather simulation computer, which is the eleventh fastest in the world, to by our best estimates to simulate the human brain. Now mm. that's not how much compute our brain is doing, and it's hard to sort of work that out. But it gives you an idea. And and I mean, when I say simulate, I mean like do all the neuron firings. Right, and, right. And, and this is just trying to read that literature. I'm not an expert in it, but trying to dig it out and, and do the mapping. And it's roughly order of magnitude what people are saying. So that thing like every day simulates the world's weather sort of a number of days ahead and then has spare time for simulating the world's climate. And uh, that's, they, they have this very cool unified model that they use the same model for daily weather as they use oh, wow. for climate of isn't that cool I, and i didn't really know that till i talked to a guy called neil robinson from the met office there. Hmm. it is crazy it's the same the same physics mm. i mean physics is so cool and then a lot of their data science that neil is in charge of is analyzing the simulation of the model but that's the side which i think is fascinating but that's the side side conversation um so the Although it's, it's in some sense, it's not a side conversation in terms of that you can simulate the weather, but understanding the thing you've just simulated in terms of counting hurricanes and the things that we would recognize, they have right. to do a load of analysis work for right. it. I mean, I think that I find that fascinating. Maybe we should do another chat about that at some point. Definitely. But um, in this in this case, um, the, the then the point, the best estimates we have around um, our communication ability. So that's, I can't even remember, but it's a number of, it's like 11 teraflops or something, that thing. Has, wow. Or, or something, I don't even know that's the right number, but it's something big, right? Yeah. So that's roughly what apparently it would take to simulate our brains. But our communication ability in terms of how much information we can transmit, and I'm, I'm talking sort of typically vocally, we're mm -hmm. not taking in visual stuff because I'm talking mm -hmm. about bi-directional communication, is estimated to be maybe various estimates. I used a different one in the talk, um, but around 100 bits per second is roughly right 100 bits mm. now computers on the other hand a typical computer is a couple of orders of magnitude less powerful than than um uh that that met office machine which which cost a lot um, <laughs> yeah. you know your typical computer is a couple of orders of magnitude less compute but its communication ability mm. is sort of a gigabit so a billion bits per second that's crazy it's crazy when you, I, the only way I could, the way I thought to try and get it across in the TED talk was thinking, well, billion, a hundred, whatever. But if you think about it in terms of money, so we're talking like, um, you know, differences, we're talking like 
how much Bezos is worth versus how much I'm worth or, you know, or Gates or Warren Buffet or one right. of these, you know, which I find, you know, when I think about it in those terms, it's kind of unimaginable amounts of money, right? It's like GDPs of countries right. versus how much like I'm worth. It's that sort of order of magnitude. Yeah. So their communication ability is way above. And so the, 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 to try and capture this, I sort of define the embodiment factor of divide the the uh, ability to um, communicate by the ability to compute. And you end up with very, very large numbers. So it's like, oh, I can compute stuff, but can I communicate it to you? Right, right. And I think this is fascinating because it's a fundamental architectural constraint on human intelligence. It had to evolve in the face of this constraint. And it's, it wasn't there in computers from the beginning. Right. Um, and it's a very, very hard constraint to deal with. Like if you're so limited in terms of bandwidth, but you need a network where you're communicating things. And, you know, I don't know. I, I never had to design one of those things, and no one ever has. We've got evolved version of those. But if you were to yeah. design something that was under those constraints, you sort of think, well, what would that thing do with all this compute that it can't communicate? Right. Well, it would do an enormous amount of second guessing of the world around it in order to know what to communicate in terms of the right thing, right? Yeah. It would do enormous amount of modeling of those entities it was interacting with. It would worry about its own goals and the goals of others. Also, I think this interesting is that it would have to do this in certain moments. I often think of hunting, like group hunting of a prey where, where like even pack dogs change their roles in, in the presence of evolving information. Yeah, that's the sort of thing that would be a, a, an interesting challenge. It would have to be able to do all that computation in those moments. It would have to be able to dedicate a lot of computation to that. And then the rest of the time, it would just be stuck with all this compute going, right. oh, well, what am I going to do now? Well, I think about the meaning of life or machine <laughs> learning. Or it really seems to map just that single constraint to me seems uh, you know, possibly to map onto all the things. And computers don't have it. So right. in terms of in the embodiment fact talk, I said, well, if you took one second of computation, um, the mind of machine talk, if you took one second of computation from a computer and you decided I'm going to communicate this to another computer, yeah, then roughly speaking, my estimate using some figures, whatever, said that, that would take 20 minutes for that mm -hmm. computer to do. Mm -hmm. But if you were to take like one second of human thought and yeah. at the level of like communicate all my neuron firings, so not the obviously not the higher thoughts, but the sort the of the registers, the like, yeah, the, the stuff, physical, the goop, the underlying stuff. Yeah. 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 And I was going to communicate that to you now. Yeah. It would take 15 billion years. Let's both get PhDs in communicating our neuron synaptic firings to each other. It would be like, this location just fired this. This location just fired that. You know. Right. I mean, and I just find that, like, I find that gobsmacking in terms of the difference. I mean, I started going down this route, and I thought, wow, that is a fundamental architectural difference between, and, and it. I think it explains a lot of why what people's fears are, because as a result, my feeling is, and I'm not an expert on this, but my feeling is that humans spend a lot of time second-guessing other humans, worrying about their motivations, both consciously and subconsciously. Yeah. Um, and and the, actually, what it really tells you is that social intelligence is the predominant form of intelligence. Right. Because if you had to architect this, the thing that you would mainly do is you would do an enormous amount of cross-checking that your you were aligned in terms of your core perception of the world, yeah. right? Because what you would need to do is like, I understand Catherine. 
and, and therefore, when Catherine sees the same thing I see, I can predict what Catherine's going to do. I, I don't need to communicate. I only need to communicate when there's a difference. I need to sort of sort of say, Catherine, the thing you should expect you to do, I have an additional piece of information. Don't do that. Do this, right? You, right. That right. type of communication. But I have to do an enormous amount of like modeling. Theory of minding. Yeah. And it means, and it means that across humanity that we all have to have some shared sort of set of experience or else we can't reach out to each other, right? And yeah. actually you realize, oh, culturally different cultures have different experiences and that's why it's different, difficult sometimes to communicate across cultures because you make assumptions about how they perceive the world and they're not how you perceive the world because it's sort of cultural. And then, and, and those breakdowns in communication, you know, they lead to horrible disagreements. Oh. Yeah. Actually, I had a really uh, nice example. Um, I had a couple of lunches with a UK journalist called Matthew Syed, who was kind of interested in this. He was explaining, he was talking about one of these cases where a lot of people died on Everest, where different people knew different things about the oxygen bottles. Apparently, there was an airline pilot on the mountain. He's written about this, who knew that the storm was coming because he understood cloud formation. Yeah. But the uh, leader, I mean, or this is the explanation. That I'm not an expert on it. The leader of the expedition just said, look, when I'm on the mountain, you don't talk. You do what I say and, and say nothing, right? So no one mentioned this stuff. Like someone knew that there were some full oxygen bottles. And when the leader said, when the leader sort of got it wrong, didn't correct and I said, well, the interesting thing about that is, is if these entities had been computers, right. none of this socialization would have mattered. They'd just go, shoo, shoo, shoo. Right. You know, there'd just been a sensor network distributed across the mountain. If they could communicate, I mean, obviously doing it on Everest is harder, but if they communicated like, they're just like a sensor network right? and the, with a shared consciousness, um, if, if one defines that as consciousness. Right. With a shared awareness. Right. A shared and awareness. Yeah. Yeah, and and none of it would have happened. But but in some sense to me the beautiful thing about humans is that we have this weird constraint. I mean, if you go into like let's get rid of that and or let's just have a shared consciousness about what to do. Well, you know, it, it, everything feels suddenly very very dull to me. Then we just start chasing the USS Enterprise through space and time trying to like, you know. We don't even do that cuz why would we do it? I mean, what's our objective? But why would we bother? We would be like Idiots. <laughs> Idiots. Look at them with their inability to communicate. <laughs> right, exactly. We would totally be like, why would we even bother? <laughs> so that's so that's fascinating, Neil. So do you so do you think it's this um it's doubt that makes animal and natural intelligence sort of unique? Doubt, I think I that's a very nice way of putting it. I wouldn't have put it that way, but I really like that. The way I, I would put it is is, is uncertainty, uncertainty mm -hmm. about other people's motives, other people's objectives. The fear, the need, I mean, I, I tend to operate by trust. I tend to be very trusting from personally. I find that efficient because if I trust, I don't have to communicate. I don't have right. to double check and I can reduce the communication overhead. But when someone, I lose trust in someone, I find it very, very hard because now I have to keep checking their motivations and, you know. And yeah. I think that that's, and obviously that's one bias another bias that you meet in some people is they're very distrusting initially until you prove yourself with them and, and all these things seem very very sensible i mean a well i mean that's, that's the thing we'll come on to next is a diversity of approaches is, is, is a very powerful thing mm -hmm. um but i don't know there's always a danger with any theory of thinking oh this explains everything right 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 and right. it's just idle thought right uh, so i don't want to get too carried away but I do like that thought. I think it's a fairly simple idea. I've not seen it 
elsewhere when i explain it to people friends who i respect they also enjoy it and apply it in different areas and i like the fact that fundamentally it's about uh information theory so we will have neil's pontificating in both his tedx talk and his paper and we'll also have a link to nick bolstrom's book and all the other things we talked about on our website thetalkingmachines.com So, Neil, this week's listener question is about math and how much math you might need to have in order to get into making ML systems. I'm in a post-baccalaureate computer science program. The only math required is discrete mathematics. I was wondering what kind of mathematics I should learn to be able to build ML programs. It seems like I should understand probability and statistics very well. I plan to take Calculus 3, Linear Algebra, and Differential Equations. Would this be sufficient? So, I mean, what do you think? I feel like it's very clear that, like, statistics is the building block that you should really start with. Yeah, I think that those are great choices. I mean, I think that uh, I wouldn't want to be too prescriptive. It's a very exciting field. Um, and one of the interesting things about it is a field is that it's very dependent on uh, application areas. And whatever knowledge you have at the moment, it's it's, it's in that exciting regime where, Probably if you know something slightly different, you'll see some different stuff that other people or understand some different stuff that other people don't see and will bring something different to the game and uh, and, and do some great stuff. But it, it, yeah, truly linear algebra is very important. Well, is it? I mean, it's not so important for the current generation of neural networks, um, hmm. but uh, it's certainly important in the things I'm interested in, Gaussian processes and, um, and I would say kernel methods. So, I mean, you, you will see linear algebra. Um, I'm constantly a bit depressed with the, the, with the gaps in my own mathematical knowledge. So the discrete math stuff is also very important. It's not stuff that I know enormous amount about, but it's sort of widely used in the theory. And, uh, you know, it's the sort of thing I regret not knowing more about. But, but I guess it's true that a lot of people are now coming to the field from computer science. Mm. Whereas, mm -hmm. like, when I started, people were more coming to the field from, say engineering or um maybe physics yeah a little bit of stats and statistics is very important but, but i also um i think grad statistics course i i i personally uh, and i've got friends like this you know i i wish i'd restudied them now uh, but i didn't get a great deal out of my undergraduate stats courses mm. uh when i was because I think what was happening is I was being taught them to deploy them as I was a mechanical engineer, as a mechanical engineer, not being taught, hey, there's a load of interesting questions that need answering in statistics. Um, and these are the open questions. I think the courses like that, that would be great or things about Bayesian stats. Um, but uh, ones that are more like this is how you apply this test or like this other test um, are, are great courses, but but not and, and, and well helpful for uh, for deployment in ML, but I, I think you, you can also find out about them in your own time. Yeah. Um, differential equations. Um, I mean, I love differential equations, but I actually had to sort of, I twisted my area of interest to sort of bring them into my study. Um, to, uh, I started looking at physical systems and the interface between that and machine learning, which I think is a great area. I love that area, but, but you'd, I don't think you see them so much in 
classical ML papers. Mm. You, differential calculus, yes, but differential equations takes that a step further. So I, I, did, I certainly did courses on that. I love them, Green's functions and all this, but um, I, I think uh, I've not been called upon to use them as as much as some of the other material. But but I've loved the fact that I had access to them, and and, and that's that's I guess one of my thoughts on it. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, basically, it's you know. <laughs> When I joined, I think I said this uh, when we had a related question, you know, you only had to know the chain rule, but um, right, yeah, right. now you've got auto differentiation. You don't even need to know that. <laughs> <laughs> if you've got a question for Talking Machines, email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet us at TLKNGMCHNS. interview on this episode of Talking Machines, um, we, we got a chance to sit down with two people who were helping to organize a, a joint summit between the Royal Society from the UK and the American Academy here in the US. And the, the summit was focusing on the future of work and how the tools in artificial intelligence and machine learning are, are really changing the way that we work and, and what are the ways that we need to change our thinking in order to accommodate those things. We got a chance to sit down with Moshe Vardy and also um, with Margaret Levy, who were two of the organizers. And we, we'll start with Moshe and then we'll hear from Margaret. And when we sat down with Moshe, we asked him the first question we ask everybody, how did you get where you are? So I'm a kind of hardcore computer scientist. Mm -hmm. My research area is logic and computation. Mm -hmm. um, in more specifically, the automation of reasoning. You mm -hmm. can think of it as a branch of artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And um, in 2011, Watson beat uh, the best two human players in jeopardy. Mm -hmm. And for me, this was kind of an aha moment. Mm -hmm. I said, wow, you know, somehow until then it felt that AI Real AI, whatever that is, people debate what it means, is very far <laughs> away, but it seems, it seems a major achievement. Mm -hmm. And I started thinking, okay, what are the, what are the implications of that? Uh -huh. And then in, in 2012, uh, there was a Turing centenary. It was the 100th anniversary mm -hmm. of Turing's mm -hmm. birthday. There were many, many events. And the magazine contacted me and asked me if I would write an article about uh, Turing's legacy. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote an article, and it was mostly about Alan Turing and his legacy. And mm -hmm. then I added final paragraph thinking, yeah, but let's think a little about the consequences, for example, what are the consequences for jobs? Yeah. And the editor came back to me and says, very interesting, but can we pivot the article so you'll have really maybe one paragraph about Turing, but expand <laughs> the part about, about then the future of work. Mm. And I said, okay, and I started thinking about it and started reading more about it. Mm -hmm. And there was a kind of the traditional view was that there's nothing to worry about. Technology is toy job, but it creates new jobs. Everything yeah. works out. Yeah. It does revolution happen. We're all okay. <laughs> but in 2012, actually, an important book came up here from, from Cambridge mm -hmm. by uh, Brynne Olfen and McAfee, The Race mm -hmm. Against the Machine. Mm -hmm. And that book really was kind of very, uh, it was uh, a bit iconoclastic. It says, no, mm. no, we, this is not so simple. And I started reading more and... 
I said, okay, it's labor, labor economics. Yeah. Well, it's not rocket science, you know, <laughs> I can understand it. And the more I read about it, the more I realized that actually the, the picture is not so simple. Mm. So I started giving talks about the future of labor. Mm-hmm. And I was challenged because I was making projections and people said, well, how do you really know? And I yeah, yeah. came to the conclusion that I actually don't know what the uh? future is. In fact, nobody does. And <laughs> I read you know, many, many projections and I says, well, it's, I take all of them with a grain, big, with a boulder of salt. salt <laughs> and uh, instead I started thinking, how did, how has labor been faring over the past generation? Yeah, yeah. And the picture is that labor has been, been faring actually fairly miserably in, mm. in the, the, the professional, the educated professional class yeah. lives in a bubble. Yeah. And uh, it's it's not the one bubble of the 1%, it's a bubble of the top 20% socioeconomically. Right. And they talk to each other, they socialize with each other, and yeah. they have no idea really how working class people have been doing. Mm-hmm. And the data actually was all there, yeah, except yeah. that people have not been looking at it until the, the summer of 2016. Mm-hmm. Because in the summer of 2016, two shaking event happened. One was the Brexit Brexit event, mm-hmm. Brexit vote, and then the second one was Trump was became the nominee of the Republican yeah. Party. Yeah. At each point, I start telling my my friends and colleagues, you know, Trump may get elected, mm. and everybody say you're out of your mind. <laughs> I said Brexit happened. Yeah, Trump yeah, happen. yeah, yeah. And then when Trump did happen, people says, wow, 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 wow what happened? What's <laughs> going on? Why are these people voting like this? Right. But in some sense, the data was all out there, and the data shows that we've had now, for more than a generation, kind of a, people call it the decoupling. Mm. And the decoupling is between uh, between GDP growth, yeah. productivity growth on one hand, yeah. and on the other hand, we have stagnation of wages and job creation, all mm-hmm. of this. We have the kind of the, the bad news. And then we can start to see the data. Data shows, for example, that uh, real wages for working class men have been declining now for a generation. I mean, people are making, I mean, the, every piece of economic data, some people debate, you haven't, yeah, compu- yeah. You haven't computed the inflation correctly, mm-hmm. you haven't taken into account uh, transfer payment and things right. like that. But the overall collection of data about the uh, decline of real wages, yeah dropping the, the really significant drop in what they call labor force participation, which mm, count the mm-hmm. number of people who are in the workforce, either having a job or looking for a job. Mm. Looking at particularly at men, because the picture for women is muddier, they've been joining the workforce, now yeah. they're also declining. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the decline of, uh, of um, labor, and you look at the whole economy and you compare labor wages compared to capital, you see yeah. then decline of labor. Mm. So all of this has been going on for generations, and people are debating what are the what's the causes, and it's very hard in, in looking at economic data to discern. You can't run experiment; it's not a lab discipline. Yeah, but there is a growing consensus now among, among economists that automation is a major factor. Mm-hmm. And so we don't even need to think about some singularity and right. huge development. Right. We just have to take current trends yeah. and just extend them. Right. And the picture looks already pretty green. Now, we already now look like if you look at working class men yeah. without college education, mm. maybe one in five, maybe one in four is not in the labor force. Right. And this is just, this is to me a crisis uh, among working class people. Yeah. And so we have to take very, very seriously that's what is really going on in the economy right now. Yeah. 
Definitely. So as a hardcore computer scientist, what do you do with this idea that that the the very nature of work is changing mm -hmm. and that if we take the if we do take the trends that we're experiencing now and simply extrapolate them out, then it seems sort of disastrous. So so the, there is now a question for computer scientists, what should we do now? Mm -hmm. And I don't think computer scientists know what exactly what to do. That's this is the real answer. They're we are scratching our head. I mean, we <laughs> see this phenomenon. We see the, the kind of decline of labor. And yeah. the question is, what should it mean for active computer scientists? And the answer is, we don't really know. Yeah, yeah. And what does it mean? I mean, should we stop doing research? I don't think most people <laughs> think that this is the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, a colleague of mine here at MIT, who is a physicist, Mark Stegman, said, we don't need less science and engineering. We need more social knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so... A meeting like this, where we bring together people from a multiple discipline, we brought here, if you think what we had here, we had economists, we had historians, we had yeah. philanthropists, you yeah. know, we had a broad array of, you know, array of, of, uh, of thinkers to put together and start engaging in a serious conversation about what, what is societal response to mm. the fact that automation is having such an impact. And, you know, part of what we learn from history is that, in fact, you look carefully at history, it's not that the Industrial Revolution happened and, and we adjusted. Mm. We adjusted with great difficulty. Right, yeah. I mean, people now forget, for example, the name, the word sabotage. Right. Come from, I think, sabot, which mm -hmm. was a wooden shoe. And you know what was a penalty for sabot, for throwing wooden shoes into the mechanical loom? Death penalty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, this was yes. very serious business. Yeah. We did not adjust easily. Yeah. And so to say glibly when the Industrial Revolution happened and everything is okay is ignoring real history. Yeah. The truth is we adjusted with great difficulty. Even yeah. in the United States. Oh, the Triangle bloody, Shirtwaist Factory bloody, fire. Bloody the labor, labor relations. You know, yeah. people being shot, police, militias being called. Mm-hmm. And so hopefully we're going to be a bit wiser this time and, and think of uh, renegotiating the socioeconomic compact. And nobody really knows exactly how. Yeah. I mean, part of the goal of a meeting like this is to try to think, okay, what, what's the right thing to do? There is, there is one big policy that's being, you hear a lot about universal basic income, mm -hmm. which is interesting, it's intriguing. It has support on the left and on the right. Mm -hmm. It has objections on the left and on the right. <laughs> I tend to be a little skeptical because oh. I'm nervous of big social ideas of yeah. re-engineering society in a big way. Yeah. The last time we had such a slogan was to each according to his needs, right. from each according to his ability. Right. And it's we saw how, how that went. And we saw how that <laughs> went, how, how well that worked. And in yeah. fact, I even remember as a, maybe as a, as a, I don't know how young, or maybe as a teenager, young teenager, my mother told me that they used to think that this was a beautiful slogan. Yeah. It incredible to people. It's, this sounded incredibly attractive. Yeah. And well, we we saw how how well this has worked. And so, in a meeting today, somebody says we should understand what people want to work, and we should right. now, you know, engineer society. I say, wow, 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 wow. <laughs> Be careful before you go on any ambitious project to re-engineer society. Right, right, right. It's very hard to re-engineer society. <laughs> These projects do not go well, generally. Yes, definitely. I mean, in some sense, I view it as two failed attempts to re-engineer society. Mm. One is communism, mm -hmm. and the other one that I think gradually people come to agree is neoliberalism. Uh-huh which is the kind of the other extreme, you know, let yeah, the yeah. market do nothing else, deregulate, corporate can do whatever they want. Right. And that has not serve, served us well either. Right. So we need to 
scratch our head and yeah. uh, and think hard now what's the fine line that we have to walk between between communism and neoliberalism right. there has to be a, yeah a better balance that we have not found yet yeah the first sentence of both of those is great but then what is the second sentence right that comes after that yeah Yeah. So so in in your opening talk, you referenced one of my favorite novels, Ender's Game, when you where where the characters think that they're doing one thing and then all of a sudden they realize they're they're doing something else. Um, And I think that uh, a lot of the people who are doing the work of building models and tools and and doing the foundational research in computer science and artificial intelligence today um, think that they are having sort of an Ender's Game moment. They think they think that they're doing one thing, but then they're being asked to think about all of the implications and um, impacts of their work, which may be much larger than they ever thought that they had to take responsibility for. So, so what would you recommend to someone who is um, perhaps in the middle of their career or just starting out at, to, to broaden their thinking, to sort of open their eyes around these larger questions that they didn't, they didn't know that they should be taking into account doing the work that they're doing? So, again, I mean, one of the things that's important to remember is that, you know, I, I just gave a talk in India just last week, and somebody else said, so should we stop doing this? Mm. And I said, look... Humanity has been shaped by technology. Mm-hmm. I mean, in some sense, human, you know, people say, what is humanity? Human, to, you, humanity is the tec- we're the technological ape, if you yeah, want. Yeah, yeah, okay? we can, we're monkeys who can use tools. We have uh, discovered fire about sometimes around a million years ago. Yeah. And what did we discover? That you, one, you can make a steak, <laughs> yeah. and it's much easier to chew cook, yeah. cooked mammoths, yes. roasted mammoths. <laughs> it's much easier to yes. chew than, than, uh, than I guess, raw, yeah, than yeah. raw mammoth, which I have never <laughs> eaten, but I'm assuming it takes a lot of chewing. Mm. And we can see, you know, you look at, look at, I've seen even gorillas. Mm. And mm-hmm. You see what part of the day they spend just chewing. Yeah, yeah, And yeah, they spend yeah. hours of the day right. just chewing. Okay? Yeah, yeah. And we sit down, you know, and, uh, you know, fast, fast food, and we, can, we are done. <laughs> And so, f- the same time, you know, fire is people die from fire every yeah, year. We still right, die from right, fire. Yes. Okay. I mean, we just had a tragedy. What is it? About a year ago in yeah, London, this, yep. this tower, that, the uh, apartment building, apartment yep. building, sixty people, yeah. something like that. What you know? So, so technology has always been a two-edged sword. Right. And I think I don't think we can say, okay, let's give up technology. Right. I mean, that's not. I mean, we can do it. That's not. We can survive today without technology. Yeah. So we have just to be wise, like yeah. you know, anything else. You know, it's a two-edged sword. It means you don't want to use one side, but you want to be careful, careful from not to get cut by the other right. side. Right. Same thing with AI. I think the the naivety that we had in some sense in in computing is we did not realize this complexity. Mm. We somehow thought this is this is just good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. if it's just good, I don't have to worry about it. Right. But the answer is no. It's it's just like almost anything else in life. Is food good? Yeah. Yes, food is good. But look at people who are dying from obesity. Right, right. Okay? And so, like anything else, there is a concept of the golden path. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we in, in computers in computing can avoid this recognition anymore. Mm-hmm. 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 Now, I think there is a growing recognition that we have a social responsibility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because there used to be an organization called CPSR, mm-hmm. Computer Professional for Social Responsibility. And I started looking, what's the history? And this organization somehow in the in the 2000s just went belly up. Yeah. For some reason, fell apart. Huh. And it's interesting for complicated organizational reasons. Yeah, yeah. But now people are saying, we need it more than ever. Yeah, yeah. Okay, there the focus, in fact, the focus, it started 
It has an early history. It started because of there was something called a strategic defense initiative yeah. in the 80s. Star Wars. Star Wars, exactly. And, and people then basically came up with a position that we do not have the technology, the computing technology, mm. to create system of that complexity. Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. was the driver for the in initial thing. Mm -hmm. And then there was focus on other issues such yeah. as uh, privacy and things like that. And some of these organizations, you know, kind of fell apart. There are many other organizations on many aspects of, mm -hmm. of you, if you, if you want, of, of adverse impact of computing. But somehow we lost this coherent voice of talking about it. And I think we will hear more people are, are rediscovering social responsibility. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they have been, I was really struck about a month ago, there was a letter from Apple investors mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. addressed to Apple Corporation raising the, the danger of the addictivity mm -hmm. of uh, iPhone for, uh, for uh, children and teenagers. Mm -hmm. and this was not a letter from the, from the Association of uh, Concerned Parents. Right, right. This is from the from people who are Apple making investors money. Yeah. who are concerned. You hear more and more, in fact, some of the early engineers of Facebook mm, mm -hmm. who are saying, mea culpa, we created yeah. this addictive thing. You know, we are trying to design how to give people little little injections of dopamine. Everybody, yeah, somebody right. clicks like. Yeah. So we are hearing more and more people in computing realizing, first of all, it's the Ender's game yeah. in two sense. One is, it's not a game anymore. Mm -hmm. This is for mm -hmm. real. Mm -hmm. and, and in fact, we're realizing now you know, we could be described now as the most central disciplines now. Right. I mean, we have this moment where we are flooded by students. All the students want to study computing. Yeah, yeah. We heard today in a meeting, everybody should get some education in computing. Right. Digital skill, dig, you know, all these things, mm -hmm. computational thinking. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we have courses that are just bulging at the seams <laughs> yes. because so many students are in the courses. Yeah. Uh, this technology are shaping everything that we do. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody is today carrying a supercomputer in their pocket. Mm -hmm. They're interacting with computer in a way that was unimaginable. I mean, you have to remember, the iPhone is, the yeah. smartphone is about 10 years old. Yep. So it would not, you know, you go back 15 years, we would not imagine that this yeah. would happen. Yeah. And so the centrality is just, it's just so, so dramatic on one hand. And like anything else, there are, you know, it doesn't come without a cost. There are right. adverse costs. And we cannot say, well, we are just engineers and somebody else should worry about it. Yeah. I don't think we know exactly how we are going to grapple with this, mm. with this social responsibility. Mm -hmm. I mean, people are still finding the way. I can tell you that every computer scientist is losing sleep over these issues. Yeah. I mean, most people are just busy doing their work like anything else. Right. But I think there are enough people who are doing it. That if, you know, there is now, there was a meeting that was held in February about ethics and AI. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, a mm -hmm. new meeting, the first meeting that was held. Five years ago, if somebody told me it will happen, I said, no way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we are hackers. We are going to let the philosopher worry about <laughs> ethics, not our problems. Yeah. And now something has changed. Yeah. The other thing that has changed, I think, very dramatically, just in the last few months, is the perception of Silicon Valley. Mm. If a year ago you asked, and, you know, I, this is not scientific mm -hmm, poll mm -hmm, anymore, mm -hmm. but generally the, you, read the, you read the papers and you, you see Silicon Valley you know, was thought of a place of innovation, yeah. economic growth, good jobs, cool gadgets. Suddenly, in the last few months, I read articles and they refer to the Silicon Valley as Martian over overlords, you know, <laughs> with, no, what is it called? Uh, overlords with a Martian, Martian morality. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah. expression like this in the mainstream media, okay, right. the Wall Street Journal, 
Right. Article that referring to, you know, people are asking, should we bust the big tech? Now, right. we used to talk about big oil right. and big pharma, and now people talk about big tech. <laughs> and um, so there is a suddenly a change recognizing both the centrality of technology yeah. and the fact that it does not come, it comes with societal costs that we must grapple with. I think the election and the, and the Russian meddling played a key role. People mm-hmm. realize how social media was manipulated. Yeah. Uh, recent news about rise in uh, depression and suicide attempts yeah. and suicide among teenagers yeah. with the people can, cannot find any cause other than against smartphone and social media. So we are having a moment. Yeah, yeah. It it feels overwhelming. I mean, how? So you mentioned AIES, which was at the. I I believe you were referring to AIES, the the ethics meeting that took place in February. Yes, at, yes. At AAAI. Yeah. Um, what what else can we do besides talk about it? Is there is there. Do we is that is that the phase that we're in right now? Is the only thing that we can do sit around, sit down, and just try to? I th- I think we're early. We're very early in the in the process of thinking. What can we do about it? Yeah. I don't think we have a good answer. You what needs to be done about it? Mm-hmm. I think one of the things you see is more meeting of this kind. That mm-hmm. people from computing are engaging with with other disciplines to yeah. talk about different aspects. Um, we we're seeing codes of ethics being formulated. People are trying to think, okay, what are what what's the risk? What's the response to that? Yeah. We might see more guidelines about technology. Mm. I think all of this is still very much up in the air. Yeah. Moshe Vardi, really fantastic to hear that conversation with him. It was so interesting. And now we'll uh, hear from Margaret Levy, who helped him to organize the conference between the Royal Society and the American Academy. Professor Levy, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us today on Talking Machines. It's a real treat and honor to have you on the show. Well, thank you for asking me. So um, we ask all of our interviewees the same questions to start off with. How did you get where you are? What's been your academic journey to the position you hold now? That, I'm very old. (laughs) That's a long, that's going to require a very long-winded answer. Um, I started, in a sense, I got my PhD here at Harvard, but I was very much part of the anti-war movement and the civil rights movement before that, the women's movement throughout high school and even before. And so the idea of continuing at private universities was not appealing to me. Mm. And so I looked for a really interesting public university job on the West Coast where I'd never lived. And I ended up at the University of Washington thinking I'd be there for a couple of years and stayed for 40. (laughs) (laughs) And several places tried to recruit me, but I wasn't ready. And I married and my husband still lives in Seattle. And um, I had gone as a fellow to the Center for Advanced Study in the 90s. It was transformative. Mm. I was on the board later and was chair of the board when we merged with Stanford. And so uh, finally, I agreed to be recruited back to be the director. And one of the things I've been doing, and this is the other sort of piece of my work, the actual substantive part, is all of my work has thought about the relationships between the organizations in which people find themselves, most importantly, government, Mm -hmm. and um, how they, the individuals who are part of that, then respond, how they perceive the governing arrangements and organization and how those governing arrangements affect their perceptions of legitimacy, justice, trust, etc. 
and what kinds of actions then emerge and how people do organize themselves to uh, make strong statements about the things they care about. I've done a lot of work on work and workers, a lot of work on the relationship between government and citizens. I was a Harry Bridges chair for labor studies. He was a very important labor union organizer on the West Coast of the Longshore Union. So I've always been m mixing these two sets of interests, my interest in how to create better governments that are more responsive to their citizens and um, concern about inequality and the people who actually produce the things that make our societies dynamic and possible. And so, and we're here today at an event that you helped to organize, which is thinking a lot about the, the future of work and the impacts of um, artificial intelligence technologies and tools on, on what we understand as work and what we understand to be, to be valuable work. Um, so, so tell me a little bit more about, about the event and what your hopes for it have been and how the process in organizing it has been. Well, part of the purpose of the event is to bring very different kinds of voices together, not and thinking together. So not just across the Atlantic Ocean, so we have the British and the American societies here, but also, as you can already see from the initial discussions that have gone on, where it's not just the technology se sector and the people who are thinking very, um, as part of their job, about AI and about technology, but also the historians, the economists, the political scientists, the sociologists, the social scientists, and the cognitive theorists mm -hmm. who are really thinking about these issues as well. Because if we're going to come up with plans for the future, whatever the actual future of work looks like, we need to keep in mind what the various kinds of impacts of things that we create do and what kinds of, of things that are valuable about the human experience and human relationships with each other should be retained in however we proceed. And we're the sources of uh, aggravation, concern, fear come from in order to be able to deal with those. So these are not just technological problems. Mm -hmm. These are societal questions. These are human questions. And so you need to really have a conversation that is much more multifaceted than you know, just getting excited about the latest product, either about what it's going to do for us or how it's going to destroy us. I think in the public conversation, we hear a lot about um, sort of hyperbolic safety questions or um, uh, easily tackled um, ethical questions around programming bias and so on and so forth. Right. But what do you think are the larger um, community organization questions that we can start to look at uh, with in consideration of how these technologies are sort of reshaping the way that we interact, the, re the reshaping the way that we derive value from worth, both like personally and as a society? Well, I think the real challenge is at the societal level, which is, and as I said in my comments, is that it's incumbent upon us to construct a new political economy that makes its moral economy, the kinds of values it incorporates explicit. Um, and that really takes into account the kinds of reciprocal obligations that we believe should exist. Now, that, that's going to be a subject of controversy because different people have different views about what firms owe to workers, mm -hmm. what governments owe to citizens, what, and, the vi and vice versa. But we have to have that conversation because otherwise we are going to be so far behind the game. Um, it, as I mentioned, it took 100 years uh, for 
the, after the Industrial Revolution before we came up with a set of constructs about social welfare and a set of provisions that protected those who were being most hurt. Mm -hmm. Even if society as a whole may have been benefiting, as we've heard several people say, um, from the Industrial Revolution, from the, from the new products, from the new productivity that was made possible from that. Certainly our society grew. But again, as then, we're dealing with huge amounts of wage disparity, sources of inequality, pockets of poverty, uh, people who are very frustrated because jobs that they've held for a long time have gone away, environments that they cared about have been degraded, mm -hmm. um, and they don't know what to do, and they, don't, and they don't feel that anybody's paying attention to them. And we're seeing as a consequence right. of that some terrible politics that have emerged in both of the countries largely represented here. Mm -hmm. um, and so we really need to take this on as a societal challenge of which technology is part of the story. It's not the driver of mm -hmm. the story. It's really what a society want to make of itself that has to be the driver of the story. What are our values? And then how do we incorporate AI and other advanced technologies into that? And that will then tell us when we regulate, when we don't, what we worry about, what we don't. And we haven't had that bigger conversation. And so my hope is that this will generate some of that bigger con conversation and put these various pieces of the puzzle board into their locations as part of a larger construct, but also make evident where we don't, we can't find the pieces. They're lost. Right. We have to, we have to invent them, invent hunt them, hunt them out. Right. Right. <laughs> exactly. And see the larger picture mm -hmm. in the process. Definitely. Where would you suggest to a person to start doing some foundational values thinking or educating themselves on the impact that their work might be having that they might not have assumed? Well, I think part of it, and again, what's happening today is, is part of that, is that people can't work individually mm. or just with people like them. Mm -hmm. That increasingly we have to construct teams around absolutely every question we can think of. So if you're designing a driverless car, it shouldn't just be two geeky boys. <laughs> I mean, we saw what happened with cars when only men were designing them. Where do right. we put our persons? Right, right, right. <laughs> Which is a trivial problem, but, you know, I'm trying to indicate that there are questions that just don't, mm -hmm. you know, they didn't think about baby seats. Right. Um, so we need to really have at the design process, mm -hmm. at the very get-go, people who are thinking about, okay, if you make this choice... How will it impact children, women, old people? What are the downstream consequences for a city if you suddenly introduce a lot of driverless cars? Right. And it's not just a question of parking and therefore reconstructing the city a little bit because of you won't need as much parking space. Right. It's, it's a whole different way of interacting with your environment, with your communities. So we need people, we need Interdis seriously intersectoral interdisciplinary teams mm -hmm. confronting each of these issues as they go along. And this isn't saying that a corporation should give up all its profit. It's saying these are the consequences of these choices. Mm -hmm. And you may make a little less profit going this way, but look how much better it will be for the society mm -hmm. as a whole. So that when it gets to the people who have to make those decisions, they actually know what the decision is. It just isn't about the coolest product and whether consumers will go for it. Right. Um, and I think that's all along the line. You know, we see this in government. You see the silo effect in academia and government and everywhere else where people talk to their own disciplines and don't get outside and think about 
you know, what would an economist or a technologist say about this question? So if we're thinking about, you know, how to embed a different kind of ethics, how to embed a different kind of decision process, we need to take into account all the different kinds of perspectives that have to be at the table so we understand what the set of choices are here, what the trade-offs are. Who's going to be hurt? Who's going to win? And if somebody's going to be hurt, how do we compensate for that? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A diversity not only of thought and background, but of experience. Exactly. Right. Every dimension of diversity you can think about. I don't mean that every decision is taken by a crowd of 3,000. Right, right, right. But, you know, a lot of us can incorporate into what we know some of those other concerns, as you hear going around the table. Mm -hmm. White men speaking for people who are very poor and of a different color. Right. And, um, women thinking about the, the hard parts of technology. I mean, you know, our experiences are multifaceted and our learning capacity is great, but we have to take into account all those different perspectives and make them very much part of our learning and decision processes. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Your center is working on a project on work and workers. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Right. So the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences, um, infelicitously known as CASBIS, <laughs> um, is a center that has been around since the 1960s. It's this 1950s, sorry. It's the second oldest institute for advanced study in the world, wow. but the very first one to introduce a fellowship program. Mm. So it was built around... Um, having people come for the academic year. They were, it was started by the Ford Foundation initially to sort of bring together social scientists to think about the, the daunting social challenges of society, um, economic, political, psychological, et cetera. Um, that's still its mission, but we're now in the 21st century and the model of how you do good scholarship follows what I just said. Mm -hmm. It's no longer just a set of individuals going to their individual studies and think, writing great books, it's much more a question of creating collaboratories of people that cross disciplines and sectors. So in addition to our fellows program and building on our fellows program, using current fellows, past fellows, future fellows, as well as people from all kinds of, of areas of thought who may not actually be fellows ever at the center, um, they may be a Google employee. Um, we have journalists who can be fellows at the center. Um, futurists, all kinds of people involved. We have uh, selected a set of themes and of big challenges, if you will, that we want to address. We then do a series of workshops to see if there's really an issue that we have a niche to deal with. Mm -hmm. And then we form a long-term project and get external funding for that. So Work and Workers is one of the oldest. It was one of the ones that I initiated opportunistically because it was something I cared about. Mm -hmm. And it all of our projects are being incubated. They're not supposed to last forever. They're incubations of new research, of new practices and policies. So Work and Workers had about a three-year life, and we reconsidered it and moved into this new area that I described that thinks about the moral economy and our reciprocal obligations, and then generated a series of specific questions that we want to address and are getting external research funding for or external support to do and bring it back together into a whole. That's fantastic. And where is the work on, what do you see as the next step for the work on moral economies? Well, our first step really, um, we got some initial funding. <laughs> 
Um, so in order to, so the first step was really to identify a group of people who could form the first, the sort of core of this initial network mm -hmm. of people that we want to establish, um, who would not just be economists, though economists will certainly be at the table. So unlike, we don't want to replicate what was done in the past, that the politically new, polit the dominant political economic framework only came out of economic theory. Right. We want economic theory to be part of it, but mm -hmm. it also has to include ethicists and social scientists and a whole group of other people. And we're trying to generate a network, and we have our first meeting coming up in May, um, which will be a small part of that ultimate network, to really energize people to be thinking about and bu building on each other and learning from each other and stimulating each other in new ways, mm -hmm. to really think about how to develop a new framework. Um, and if we're successful, I don't know who will produce it, whether it'll be one person's great mind like Keynes or whether it'll be multiple people like really created neoliberal economics, even though we have names attached to it like Hayek and Friedman, but there were a huge crowd of them. Um, but we'll see what happens. It's the idea is to generate this and then to link with some other efforts that are going on supported by the Ford Foundation and the Hewlett Foundation, among others, that are really um, trying to create organizational and, f and foundation and government capacity to take advantage of ideas as they come forth and to really begin to change the world. Margaret Levy, and earlier we heard from Moshe Vardy. And it, Neil, it was just so interesting to be able to attend this event, but then also really to hear these two people who had helped to organize it about what their what their hopes and their goals were for it. And it was it was really fascinating to see the the theme around breaking down silos of thought and bringing everyone together to have sort of a unified conversation about what is the world that we have, what it was the world that we want to have, and then like, how do we get there, right? Like, that seems so crucial. Yeah, it's, it's sort of a weird systemic facet of academic things that we have to specialize because it's some sort of a weird system of self-congratulation that requires <laughs> us to get more and more technical and yeah. it's really it, it, it stops the, the cross-boundary stuff and I, I think the American Academy and the Royal Society have understood that one of their roles is to break that down and you need those institutions in, yeah. uh, or to do that and and I think it's a sort of um you know sometimes I forget because all this stuff's going on but it's pretty cool that that, that we get to be at the center of something so important but then there's a massive responsibility yes and, and it's great that these events are going on definitely well that's it for this episode of talking machines i'm katherine gorman and i'm neil lawrence tune in next episode mm -hmm.